to the Very Well Mind podcast. We've interviewed over 100 authors, experts, entrepreneurs, athletes, musicians, and others to help you learn strategies to care for your mental health. This episode is hosted by psychotherapist and best-selling author Amy Morin. Now let's get into the episode. My guest today is three-time NBA All-Star Steve Francis. He played for the Houston Rockets, the Orlando Magic, and the New York Knicks. He's especially known for his speed, his ball handling skills, and his extreme ability to dunk the basketball. But as you'll hear in our conversation, his rise to the NBA was kind of an unusual one. He had to overcome a lot of adversity to succeed. Some of the things Steve shares include what helped him overcome the obstacles in his life, how he became so good at basketball, even though his real love was for football, and how he continues to stay mentally strong. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for the therapist's take. This is the part of the show where I'll break down Steve's mental strength building strategies and explain how you can apply them to your own life. So here's Steve Francis. He's mentally strong. This is his story. Steve Francis, thanks for being on the Mentally Strong People podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So I recently wrote a parenting book, and I get a lot of questions from parents. They'll say things like, my eight-year-old didn't get enough playing time, and now he's not going to be the all-star on the team, and he'll never get a college scholarship, and he's not going to make the NBA. You're one of those people who have sort of a non-traditional path to the NBA. I understand (laughs) you only played a couple of high school games. How did you go from only playing a couple of high school games to ending up in the NBA? I think um, exactly what your your, your your show is about, mental toughness. Um, you know, nobody knows, especially the NBA, any any career that you, you know, you dream of, you don't know the obstacles that you'll face. So a lot of perseverance and a lot of praying really helped me out. And I know that your childhood wasn't an easy one. You didn't have parents that were pressuring you to score a million points in all the basketball games and that sort of a thing. You had a a tough childhood. Yeah, definitely. Um, You know, uh, for me, being uh, one of the kids who was less fortunate growing up, I was able to see the parents of the kids who who had the money, the capital to pay for every single thing. And just like you just hit on, the way that they try to pressure their kids to be the next Nolan Ryan or the next Kobe Bryant or the next Michael Jordan. So for me, it was more survival, something to do to ease the pain as far as uh, not being financially stable in certain aspects, you know, so. And then how did you, like, literally, how did you go from only playing in a couple of high school games to then going to college? And then how did anybody know you could play ball? Well, it wasn't like the people that pay for their kids to go to college, that type of scandal. Um, <laughs> but for me, um, like I said, the perseverance, uh, I was able to obtain my GED. I got my GED in Texas after I went to six high schools. I got my GED, and I was uh, able to obtain a scholarship to University of Maryland, um, which was one of the best things for me because even despite my upbringing, I was still sharp in school. But the focus of the outside things really were more enticing for me because that's what I was seeing at home every day. You know, I wasn't um, getting picked up from school or nothing like that. 
I find most mentally strong people say that it was their struggles that taught them the most. Would you say that's accurate for you? Absolutely. Even today, uh, I'll be like, I'm, you know, sometimes, you know, those those grueling times, you know, those times when your Christmas aren't the way that your friends are, when you're not always up to par with some things that you, you know, that you think that you should have. And, uh, you know, you value those things even more now, um, especially I do. I know that. What was your childhood like? Uh, it was cool. Um you know, going outside, unlike the kids nowadays, you know, I was always outside playing um, in my neighborhood. Um, you know, we moved a lot uh, being in poverty. You know, a lot of people in Washington, D.C. area. Uh, and now, as I see, as the gentrification is coming, how can I help? But, you know, me, um, you know, growing up, we really didn't, we were less fortunate. You know, welfare was our neighborhood, Section 8 neighborhoods and things like that. So we all knew each other and love was one of the things that helped a lot of people in those struggling times. And how'd you learn how to play basketball? Um, I really thought I was, a, I was really good at football. Uh, <laughs> uh, the day that I started, started playing basketball, I, um, I was forced to go to practice by one of my friends. I, just like, man, I'm not ready. You know, I was small, and I was one of the smallest guys, and I came with some boots on. So, you know, the coach really took me under under his wing. He seen that, you know, um, I was a little shy. I just moved to a new neighborhood again. You know, like you said, I was my childhood. So I guess this moves, that move to that neighborhood in Tacoma Park, Maryland, was one that stuck with me. And uh, from then I, you know, continued to play basketball. And then, so you go to college and you, at some point you dropped out of high school, you get your GED, you go to college. Yeah, I dropped out of high school. No, don't ever do that. No, I'm messing with you. <laughs> and then, I guess, what made you, first off, what made you get your GED after dropping out of high school? Uh, I knew, like I said, when I was in high school, I wasn't a bad student. It was mm -hmm. just the other intangibles about being in high school, being able to go to lunch at, at, at lunchtime. You can go off a of campus or something like that. It wasn't junior high or middle school like they have now where you can have outside things come in. So I think, um, you know, I kind of fell off. You know, my mom passed when I was 18. So that was, I, I was like, I didn't know what to do. So for me to be able to uh, refocus and know that that's what I wanted to do was uh, my one of the determining factors for me. How did you not go down the wrong road as a kid that was at risk and with all these struggles? It was it was one foot in, one foot out for a long period of time. You know, I would hang with the drug dealers on the corner. I would be at the gym with the SAT, the uh, SGA. But uh, like I said, when you don't have any productive things after school provided for you that are um, not available for you all the time that you need them, you, you know, um, growing up in poverty and those uh, drug-hindered neighborhoods and uh, generational of those type of things, you know, you gotta, um, you gotta have a, a strong will, um, a strong will. I've read about your story. It's not a secret that you sold drugs at one point, right? As a kid. Yeah, it's not. I mean, it was because I was always little Stevie. Um, but I mean, I think that it wasn't nothing to boast about, but like I said, at, at those times, it was something that was pop was happening. One and two, we needed some money and, you know, you can get the things that you always wanted that you seen the kids at school have. Hey, I can do it the same way. And at that age of 16, 17, 18, 19, you know, you think that you have your whole life in front of you. But so 
Um, that wasn't a way that I want to go. I seen so many bad things happen, jail, death, families being disoriented from, you know, like I said, generations before. So, uh, yeah, so I think, you know, um, God had a long talk with me. And was that what steered you on the right path? Part of it, was it your faith? It has to be, yes. It, definitely my faith because, like I said, six high schools, uh, three colleges, like that's that's uh, six transfers. I went to two two high schools. But, I mean, just all those type of things, something somebody had to be looking over me, and I know it was God. And did you have anyone or uh, anything in your life that, that kept you going through all that other than your faith? Um, you know, my little sister, you know, I didn't want her um, to, you know, she didn't get an opportunity to really to, to um, meet my mom as much. So I always told my mother I would be a professional football player, but it happened to be basketball. So that, that drove me. Um, and also just wanted to be best, being competitive and, you know, not want to stop something that I started. You know, so you always had a competitive nature about you? Yeah, so like the Cowboys lost today, so I'm a little upset, but <laughs> I think this will help me mentally, being able to talk calmly right now. It is Great. Therapeutic, very Excellent. therapeutic on a Sunday night. <laughs> and so then you, you're in college, you're playing, and then how did you go from college to the NBA? What happened? It was not your typical path. You know, I was... Uh, I think I had a great junior year at the University of Maryland. It was, and, and for me, I was fortunate because it was an NBA lockout. It was stoppage to play on a professional level. So all their attention was on the NCAA basketball. And uh, I went to my home school, the University of Maryland, and the comfortability similar to being in your own element is like playing at home. And I was playing at home and uh, had a phenomenal season there. Uh, the hype began to follow the actual play in the face, but besides all these articles and, you know, uh, some, you know, the NBA draft came and I was blessed to be there. And then what was that like to find yourself suddenly in the NBA? Especially if you, at one point you thought you were going to be a football player. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I I felt like it was a dream that it happened that way and how fast it happened once it started going. So once I got to junior college in Maryland uh, and I announced that I was going pro, I had a Lexus truck the next day. And, and I was like, and I didn't believe it. And I was just like, yeah, this is really, you know, what you, you thought it was. And overwhelming, completely overwhelming. And was it scary once you got into the NBA? Did you feel like it could be taken away from you at any second? Did you ever feel like, my gosh, I don't belong here? Or what was that like? And I was like, Phew. finally, I got a consistent roof over my head. Yeah. Finally, it's something consistent in my life that I know. Even like college, I knew it was four years maybe. But the NBA, I knew this would be something that they call a job, but it was something I did for fun also. So uh, I knew the stability was there. And then what about the people that were around you? Here you are, you get into the NBA. Obviously, that didn't happen to probably most people that you grew up with. What was other people's reactions to your success? Uh, mind blown. Majority of the people were, you know, happy. A lot were surprised. And you also have haters, of course. So it was all around the world. But the most important was my immediate family was happy. And, um, and they played an integral part in a lot of things of me, like I said, going through schools and, uh, you know, not having the financial backing that, you know, most people have. So, you know, I had my family and some friends. And then what was it like to make money all of a sudden? 
It was different. Um, it wasn't like you were getting cash or anything like that. So I was going to the bank and just seeing your accounts. But, um, you know, being able to go to the mall and get what you want was always something that I was wanted to be able to do. And that that was a great feeling for me. And were there ever times where you thought, I don't belong? If you looked around at the other NBA players, maybe who had had a completely different childhood and they'd had parents that had supported them the whole way and they had more money growing up. Did you ever have those moments of thinking, I don't know if I belong here? I wouldn't say that I don't belong. I think that um, sometimes those type of things enabled them uh, mm-hmm. when they were younger. Um, and and I think that's helping me with my kids to the day that I'm not going to enable them in sports. My son, like I said, I was a football player. He likes basketball, but he's a better baseball and football player. So um, I, I, w- I, I deserved it. I worked hard. I sacrificed. So. Um, regardless of if somebody sees you or not, if you're that talented and you can stand out, um, anybody will see. And how much of your success was because of natural talent and how much of it is just your perseverance and pure hard work? God given. I mean, my calves, like people were like, I was like, man, I did a little bit of work on my calves, but that's how I was born. And, uh, you know, skinny ankles and big calves. So I think genetics, um, and uh, like you said, work ethic and uh, believe. And when could you dunk a basketball? I was probably 18. You know, you got these kids now of 13, 14 dunk. And I, like I said, I grew when I was late. I grew probably like when I was 17 going to 18. I grew from like 5'8 to 6'2. Um, and then 19 to 20, I'm at 6'3 now. So unreal. Always was the shortest guy. Always uh, had to beg to get on and get beat up by the bigger guys. But um, I think that helped me uh, as my career progressed because I was always used to going through the lane and making some type of acrobatic moves to get a, avoid getting hit by one of the bigger players. And how did you learn that? How did you? Looking at other guys, okay. thinking I was Michael Jordan, which I was so small, <laughs> just practicing all those moves, five, four, three, two, ones, day and night, um, and playing against better competition because I was always small, so I always to get on the court, I would have to play that much harder to play with the better players and a bigger, older, smarter, wiser guy. So, Oh, so that's a good point, actually, because I think a lot of times we want to compete against people who are either equal or not as good as we are because it makes us feel good when we Confidence. win. But to be able to play against people that you know are really good, you have to know sometimes you're not going to win. And just what you hit on earlier, right. And I think some of those guys who you said earlier who had the money and things like that, they were content at that level. So they didn't want to jump outside the box and try to, you know, even though the age was a difference, but you got to have that type of heart, that mentality. Like if you want to play against the best to try to find your way to be around that situation. And um, that's what I always thought about. But yeah, now that you said that, that's the way it was. Cause it's not about being hard or soft or anything about like that. It's about, you know, believing in yourself. And what about when you make a mistake? What kinds of things would run through your head when you would make a mistake? That's when a doubt would come. Like, why? Or the self-scolding. Like, why would you do that? But like, is this guy better than me? So that's when a doubt would come and you would play that in your mind. And some guys who are not mentally strong enough will let that keep eating at them and eating at them. But if you replay it in your mind enough to look at where you made those mistakes at, that's what film is for. That's what criticism, how you take it. Uh, of course, you're going to be mad at some criticism. Everybody does. They're lying if they're not. And that should fuel you to want to do better. 
So how do you learn to take criticism in a way that's helpful rather than... It depends a yeah. lot on who it's coming from, the timing, and the the deafness to it. The deafness meaning how deep are they going? Is it just something that they want to use for an article or is it something they just want to use for a show or they want to know the whole truth? So if they want me to explain that, it's easy for me to explain why I feel that way. But to take it in, um, you just got to sit there. Okay. You got to sit there and take it. You have to. I don't know. I don't care how much you want to cringe. Um, and especially, like, for me, watching my turnovers in a game was, like, one of the treacherous things because a lot of the times you're trying to do too much, show off, or fatigue and trying to do too much. And I, being a team player, selfishness. If I'm tired, I should put my hand up and say it's time to come out. And I see that a lot now. And a lot of players are getting injured because of fatigue to their body. And as a player, what were some of your strengths? What made you so much better than a lot of other people? I let, um, you know, the people who see me play say that, but I, I know that every game I came prepared. Mm -hmm. um, I know that I was ready for 99.9% of the games I played in. I read a story about, I think it was your first NBA game, that one of the other players takes you out and... yeah. It was my boy, Sam. It still is my Fraser coach, <laughs> Sam Cassell. Uh, but it, it just felt like we were just friends, just chilling, just talking. He was really going to help me play, but I knew we were going to be going head to head. But I didn't think that uh, it would affect my body because I hung out at clubs before. But this was just, you know, a little lounge and in front of my house. But I learned my lesson quick about that. He keeps you up all night, right? All night to four o'clock in the morning. Uh, we went out to eat, and then we come back to my house just to talk about the league, what to expect. And this is in my garage, in my house. So um, for me, I was just like, you know, I was just, I was respecting it because we ain't, before I was in the NBA, we were friends. He's from Baltimore, and I'm from Washington. So I just thought he was giving me some big brother advice. Hey, he right, won. he acts like he is, but then ultimately he's keeping you up all he night. He had 35 points that game, too, and <laughs> I'll never forget that. So what did you learn from that lesson? <laughs> Don't judge a book by its cover, one, because he's not as athletic as me. And two, uh, the NBA is definitely competitive, and everybody wants to win at any cause. Interesting. So he keeps you up all night. He still scores really well. You, on the other hand, struggle because you're tired. And, yeah, like I said, fatigue, yeah. So you probably didn't make that mistake again after that game. Not at all. Uh -huh. Not at all. Uh-uh. So I, I warned a lot of the younger guys about, hey, I know you do have friends on the other teams. And I gave them the whole story that you read. So uh, I was able to tell some people to watch out for that move. <laughs> and then how did you mentally prepare for games? Music, uh, my routine, um, wake up at the same time, uh, eat uh, at the same time. Um, not really listen to the same music. I would, it depends on, you know, how I slept. But music and, you know, pregame was very important. And some of the things that a lot of guys don't understand on game day, distractions are your telephone. Your mm. telephone and people with tickets. Those are the number one and two distractions. Um, about, of course, money is the number one thing everybody beg you. But game day, tickets, and uh, your telephone. Because people are asking for tickets or asking for stuff. Absolutely. And did you have the same like pregame routine that you'd go through before? Yeah. Every game? So here we go. I wake up. If we played at home, I would wake up at eight, uh, get dressed, um, 
get to the arena. Even I had breakfast at home at the arena. Um, really didn't uh, wake up until I got there. I'll try to listen to some music, but I'll still be sleep driving. And once I got to the arena, game practice or game day, just relax. You know, check out, talk to the trainer, talk to the guys, see how everything went with them last night. Um, focus on what we're talking about. If it was a game before, we would look at film. But mentally, I would, uh, being a leader uh, as a rookie was tough. Um, so I would, uh, you know, talk to the big guys because you always need your big guys to win, you know, and try to, you know, become great friends with them and talk to those guys. Uh, Practice, talk to coach, not at work. But uh, from 2 to 4.30 every game day, I have to, it has to be quiet in the room. The door has to be shut. Either I'm watching TV or it's quiet or I'm just doing something by myself. Um, and I've done, I did that for 12 years in a professional. Uh, as a, oh, even in college, I did that too. Actually, yeah, I have to take that pregame nap and it has to be quiet. And would that get you in the right head space? My space. Either my problems would slowly, I would think about stuff off the court and on the court. So that was my quiet time before I got to the arena, where once you get in the arena and you're on that court, nothing can bother you when you're in between those lines. So free time. So those were my hours. And did you find other people would, would like you say, get distracted by stuff? They didn't have that. Yeah, I would see guys, like, in a more, I, well, as I got older and better, I would leave my tickets at home and have my brother do it. But sometimes, well, majority of the times on the road, you have to handle your tickets yourself. So when you got younger players on your team, you can, you know, just write their names down and just give them the tickets and they'll take care of it for you. But I've seen guys, man, like, oh, I mean, I've seen guys lose their mind before games with ticket issues. It's crazy. So just, Baby mama drama. I haven't seen it all. <laughs> set aside all the stressful things and say, this is this is what I do. This is how I get in the right space. And then you did it and it clearly worked for you. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the baby mama drama, man. Like two baby mothers at a game. Like, I'm like, how do you put yourself in that position? <laughs> That's a whole nother story. Yeah. All right. So set yourself up for success by reducing the distractions. And exactly. And I think uh, the best to do it, of course, is Kobe. Mm -hmm. Rest in peace to Kobe Bryant. He was one of the most focused people that I've ever been around, played with in the All-Star game. And All-Star games are typically a showcase for all the top players. But in the fourth quarter, this guy's like really playing like it's the finals and yelling at guys. And for three years, I was able to start the All-Star game with him and seeing his approach from being the best player in the world to being the first person at practice not going to any of the parties or the discipline. And, you know, just to see that was phenomenal. Let's talk about discipline for a minute. How did you stay disciplined over the years? Uh, the most important thing was um, praying, um, you know, and knowing that, you know, it just like you said, I could have lost it at any second and being grateful that I was able to stick to my guns and stick to the path of believing you know, believing in that I can be successful in basketball, uh, academically. Um, like I said, when I got my GED, it was kind of a point where I was going through so many things mentally that I couldn't focus on school as much as I was previously. So um, I think the my belief system. And then 
once you, you know, were in the NBA for a while, uh, I would imagine there's always a fear of injury. There's always a fear that it could be taken away. How do you manage to be grateful for what you have and yet at the same time, you know, strive to keep bettering yourself? How do you find that balance? When you would hear somebody get injured, you would get nervous. I know I did. I would get nervous, like, what if that happened to me and the comebacks? And and I did get injured, as you see right here. Um, it wasn't like an abrupt injury. Well, I did get an abrupt injury. Yeah, I mean, excuse me, I got injured a lot. Um, dang, yeah, I did. So I ripped my shoulder. Uh, when I ripped my shoulder, just like you hear those stories, like the team going to make you play. Yeah, they made me play. Um, and I was telling them for, I was like, I think my shoulder's ripped. Like, nah, just, you know, I'm working out, lifting, they like, just do that type of rehab. I never got an MRI. They gave me a, a, a bone scan. But knowing that it was one more year before my contract was about to come up, after the season, they decided to do the MRI. Oh, interesting. After the season, after we were, we didn't make the playoffs. And all right, well, he's he's really beat up. Let's do this MRI now. And it came, I had a, a Tommy John almost type injury, a baseball injury. And uh, I went back to the time when it happened and I seen it. And yeah, I can see how it happened. So then what happened to you after that? I had surgery, um, was pissed. Uh, but that time off helped me um, get stronger mentally about what if it's taken away from you? What would you do? Who would you be? So in that time, I was able to focus more on my foundation, focus on, um, you know, some of the things that I want to do off the court. And that was my shoulder. That was nine months. How many years were you in the NBA? Ten. And how does that compare to the average NBA career? Is that I think it's three to four years. Really? Two to four years or something like that. So um, they ship them in, ship them out. And these kids that are coming in now are younger, swifter, um, and athletic. So um, you have to be on top of your game in all aspects to you know, be that machine for eight months out of every year. I can imagine. Eight months out of every year. You're traveling. You don't even know was on the tenth floor last night, the fourth floor, or twenty twenty six or ten fourteen, and falling asleep three o'clock in the morning. So, how do you decide how much to push yourself? But at the same time, you can't push yourself too hard because you'll get injured. Your body will tell you. Yeah, your body um, will tell you, and and a lot of people don't really. But I, I know I do. A lot of people don't believe in getting veteran advice from people who've really been through those strenuous seven, eight-day road trips and four games and five nights and things like that. So if you have four 48-minute games and five nights, you got to get some rest. You have to make sure you're fueled up properly and, um, you know, um, be mentally prepared. And how did you not get in trouble as an athlete? Obviously, it's no secret that lots of athletes go down the wrong path once they get into, say, the NBA. I, I wouldn't say that I didn't get in any trouble. I would say um, I love the game too much you know, not to do some of the, the the dumb things that people do to get their stuff exiled. Um, one thing that I did do, I did get a DWI mm-hmm. um, when I got divorced, so I was pissed. Um, so that right there showed me that uh, uh, one reaction of an immediate anger can ruin a lot of things. Mm. And at that point, for my kids to see that in the newspaper and on television was so disheartening. That maybe not want to, you know, be in the media for nothing like that. But um, that was one thing that I superly regret and get married. All those things on the same day. 
For, you know, for a lot of people, if they get in trouble, though, it's, it's, you can keep it fairly private. Oh, yeah. Definitely. And for you, obviously, it hit the media and everybody knew. And then, and then right after that, it snowballed and some lady said, I robbed her in Florida. So, and I, I was actually there, but, and then it wasn't the fact that she said that I robbed her, it was just that being at the wrong place at the wrong time and people believed it, you know? So it doesn't make a difference who people say you are or who you're not. It's about the perception. But if you believe in yourself, see, things like that you can shake off. Yeah, so I read that story. It's a bizarre story. Uh, How did you deal with all of that? Then suddenly everybody thinks, all right, you got a DWI, you burglarize somebody in this bizarre set of events. How do you step outside your house after that and the media is buzzing about it? What the heck? I'm talking about, I was so shocked. I'm just like, I'm in Houston in jail for a DWI. They're like, hold up, hold up. I'm about to get out. And they're like, hold up. Somebody just reported that uh, last year ago you were, I was like, yeah, I live in Florida. And they were like, yeah, uh, this lady said, I was like, no, that wasn't, I didn't do, I said, yeah, I do know. I remember that day. I said, I dropped a bag off. And they said, the lady said, I robbed her. And and I, and when I recollect it, I remember that lady. Um, she was a real rude drunk lady that was at this bar down there in a predominantly white place, um, which I thought, and I still do, I still go there now. I wouldn't even know what she looked like if I even seen her, but it was an unfortunate situation. So how did you, I guess, how much did you worry? There's a difference between character and reputation. You knew your character, but your reputation at the moment is on the line. I couldn't control the reputation because people were piling thing after thing and snowballing so many false things like if I would have indulged in any of that, that would have probably destroyed me. But my, like I said, my will and my support system was strong enough. And I know the actual truth and my kids know the truth. So um, at points, the people that were saying things, was it disheartened? Not really, because some of it was expected. Because like you said, I wasn't even supposed to be in the position that I'm in. So everything is a plus. Right. Everything is a plus. And then did you struggle as far as your DWI? Did you get that taken care of? Was it a struggle with alcohol? It, it, uh, it wasn't really a struggle. I just like having fun. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So for me to relax after all that I've been through, yes, I was partying, you know, just like anybody else. But when you got guys like Gronkowski, and I'm not just saying it, but you have other guys who do the same type of things, and then they're looked at, oh, he's just out there having a great time. But really, they're just out there doing the same thing, popping off. So... It's always a um, it's a double edged sword, but you gotta take you gotta take it as it comes for the good and the bad. And like you said, you have to be strong and you know level at it. And then obviously, the media still talks about you. So there was a story not too long ago about like, oh look, what happened to Steve Francis after the NBA? He became a UPS driver, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I thought and. I like I know some people that work for UBS. So whoever people have things on thing time on their hands to do that to try to I don't know what what how does it make them feel? Like they want more likes or more hits or I don't know. But uh, but it was it was like I said again. My my son was with me that day that we volunteered with our foundation. So uh, immediately I was like whatever. But it was just funny to me. Right. Is it interesting to you that people still want to make up rumors? They still want to say things? 
It, I mean, if they're not making it up, that must mean something wrong with you. So, hey, any news is good news if you're doing the right thing and still have the same beliefs and get stronger as the days go by. Because the truth is you have a foundation. You were doing a good deed when helping out UPS, yeah. right? Yeah, and it's not the first time that I work with uh, Representative Sheila Jackson Lee and the mayor of Houston uh, and UPS, um, FedEx. So, so they didn't put the FedEx picture up, so... But, Toyota. So a lot of those um, companies that my foundation are partners with, um, you know, I'll wear a shirt for a picture for the foundation. Sure. And not that there's anything wrong with being a UPS driver, but do you feel like... I don't think there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, you know, people like driving. I know I have a friend who just loves driving and he does it for a living. But do you feel like people want to know, oh, you know, Steve, after he got out of the NBA, he wasn't able to maintain it. That's now a he typical has to go get story. It. That's a typical story, like NBA players. And it's sad that it is a lot of people that who were once, you know, financially stable, who made some mistakes or had some money taken away from them by some some sharks who, uh, you know, who pry on people who aren't mentally strong to, you know, take advantage of their money and mismanage and things like that. And I talk to a lot of people who struggle when they retire, you know, from an everyday job. They're 50, 60, 70 years old. They retire. They kind of lose their identity. Obviously, elite athletes, you guys retire way younger than everybody else. Was it a struggle after you were done playing basketball to then say, well, who's Steve Francis now if you're not actively in the NBA? Um, Not really. And and I wasn't really, that didn't really make me who I am, you know, before, after, during, or anybody I'm still the same person, um, even if I was playing. But as far as, like, really focusing on what I want to do, there's so many opportunities still to this day. But just to slowly um, settle down, like I said, for eight months, and not really the NBA. You got to think, before you even get to the NBA, those are years of AAU basketball, 10, 12 years of that, and college, and you know, so all that's 20, 30 years of just getting to the league. So just to unwind from that is always, it takes a while. So in your post-NBA life, how do you stay mentally strong now? Um, just looking at my kids, um, not just, but just trying to evolve and do some of the things that I couldn't do while I was traveling those eight months for that period of time and seeing some things that I've always wanted to experience. Uh, so that keeps me... Um, that keeps me stable and, you know, wanting to learn something new at any given opportunity. And how about, how do you raise mentally strong kids? What's your advice for parents out there who want to make sure don't that their do kids this, are Don't strong? do this. Nah, I don't. Let them be as much as they are um, and, and check on them, like do a mental check. And just like you have to do with yourself and check in, you know, and see what, see what, what are their goals as they progress in age. As I see my son, you know, he's getting older and wants to do more things individually away from his sister because they were together a lot uh, growing up. So, you know, just get check-ins and um, and don't like, for me, my, I'm blessed again that, you know, I was able to play basketball professionally, but that my kids aren't over zealous about it, except for my daughter, because, you know, she's 15 year old and whatever. So, but I, I, I can deal with that. But uh, other than that, um, just letting them know that, you know, that you're actually a real person, regardless of what's said about you, good or bad, you're still the same person. So what do you do now? How do you spend your time? Uh, traveling a lot. Uh, lately, uh, just involved myself in the basketball league, uh, um, 
semi-professional basketball league that's community-oriented, similar to what I do regularly, my foundation. Uh, but it also gives an opportunity for basketball players uh, in 33 regions uh, in the United States to be seen in 80 countries. And that's just like me giving back for, like, people who believed in me. When I was going through junior college, they still came to see me play despite it not being on the big lights. But they knew that I had talent. So we want to do the same thing to implement that in this TBL basketball league. Not only am I owner, also an ambassador to go speak to other uh, organizations, teams, and other things like that. So that's a challenge for me right now and um, and my foundation and, um, you know, those things are keeping me busy as of late. Very cool. Yeah. One last question for yeah. you. For somebody out there who's struggling maybe with self-doubt, they think they can't succeed, they think they're not good enough, what would your advice be to them? Uh, my my advice would, you know, definitely do uh, what, what it says. And it's not a cliche. Take that look in the mirror. Uh, take the look in the mirror and just ask yourself, are you giving yourself your all? Are you really... And it comes from yourself. I mean, regardless of what outside people say, you have to want better for yourself first before you can help anyone outside of that mirror. Um, and then with that, you know, get get uh, something that can relax you, a breathing exercise, a tapping mechanism. And for me, I use a, um, a happy place. Oh, and love my, it. And my happy place is West Palm Beach. Nice. So that's why I'm here a lot. And... Um, I enjoy just the water and sounds, mm-hmm. sky, and I don't even spend that much money out here. So, and those are pretty simple things, like you say, uh, uh, just to go to your happy place to practice breathing exercises, those sorts of things. Those are things anybody can do. And it doesn't cost you anything. It costs you your your will to be honest with yourself, honesty, and and I and I can tell you there were times when I look at myself and I'd be like, oh, you bull, you BS." You know, you BS and and those are when, and that's when you know that you're learning because you can call your own bullshit. Oh, yeah. I think that that, that helps you. And even though you feel down about it because you know it's the truth, but I think that makes you stronger. I think so too. Tough to do, but wise advice. Exactly. Steve Francis, thanks for being on the Mentally Strong People podcast. Thank you so much. Welcome to The Therapist Take. This is the part of the episode where I break down some of the strategies Steve shared and explain how you can apply them to your own life. Here are three of my favorite strategies from Steve's wisdom. Number one, look at your struggles as an advantage. Many NBA players grew up with parents who enrolled them in expensive programs to give them a competitive edge in sports. But that wasn't Steve's experience. He grew up in poverty and had to overcome a lot of difficult circumstances but he viewed the adversity that he faced as an advantage. Rather than feeling embarrassed by the fact that his upbringing was different, he embraced it. And he thought about how what he went through probably helped him in the long run. That's a really good mentality, but sometimes it's tough to do. If you grew up in poverty or you overcame abuse, you might find yourself feeling like you don't fit in or thinking that you aren't as good as other people. But you can't change the things that happen to you. And being ashamed of the things that you went through will only hold you back. So accept what happened, think about what you learned from it, and consider if somehow the tough things you went through might have helped you grow stronger. Number two, practice with people who are better than you. Steve said he liked to play against the best basketball players in the world 
because he knew playing against someone like Kobe Bryant would make him better. This sounds easy to do on the surface, but again, sometimes that's tough to do. Usually we like to surround ourselves with people who make us feel good about ourselves. And the easiest way to do that is by hanging out with people who are either struggling more or spending time with people who are only as equally skilled as you are in some way. But if you want to learn and grow, it's important to have people who have more skills than you in your life. In order to do that, though, you have to know that they might outshine you. And for many of us, that's uncomfortable. That's not to say that you should compare yourself to other people just to see how you measure up, because that's not helpful. But you do want to challenge yourself by learning from people who have knowledge and skills that you'd like to gain. Number three, use criticism to become better. Steve talked a lot about learning from criticism, and it's probably one of the biggest reasons why he was so successful. He was open to learning from other people who gave him advice. Of course, he had to figure out who actually had his best interest at heart when they offered him advice. He had to learn not to listen to people like the friend who just kept him out all night pretending to give him advice when really he was just trying to prevent him from sleeping the night before a big game. But he learned to listen to his coaches and other basketball veterans who criticized his game, and that helped him get better. It's tough to hear criticism, though. Your first reaction might be to lash out at the person giving you that feedback. It's easier to think about all the reasons why that person doesn't know what they're talking about than it is to consider how you might actually do better. It's also tempting to come up with excuses for the things that a critic points out. You might catch yourself saying something like, well, I only did it that way because there was a problem with the computer. Or, I would have spent more time on it if my coworker didn't drop the ball. But excuses aren't helpful. Of course, you want to consider who's giving you the feedback. Ask yourself, is this person actually trying to make me better or are they just trying to make themselves feel better? A stranger on the internet, for example, who lashes out is probably just trying to make themselves feel better. But hopefully your friend or your partner actually has your best interest at heart. If it's someone whose feedback you trust, commit to listening to it and at least considering it. You don't necessarily have to agree, but if you're open to considering it, you might find that there are ways you can improve, even though it might take a lot of work on your part. Ultimately, helpful feedback can help you become better and grow stronger. So those are three of Steve's mental strength strategies that I highly recommend. Look at your struggles as an advantage, practice with people who are better than you, and work on learning from criticism when it's helpful. I hope you enjoyed Steve's conversation as much as I did. Thank you for listening to the Very Well Mind podcast. If you found this episode informative, please share the episode with your friends and family and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the Very Well Mind podcast, you can head to verywellmind.com slash podcasts.